I'm Jacob Gottwalls, and this is Spiritual Awakening for Geeks. This is a show for independent spiritual explorers who seek peace of mind, better relationships, and a more meaningful life. This show is for people who are into meditation, psychology, spiritual practice, spiritual community. It's a show for people who value spiritual independence. So what does that mean, spiritual independence? Well, it doesn't mean that we'd never join a religion. It doesn't mean we'd never follow a spiritual teacher. What it does mean is that when we do those things, we try to maintain some perspective and we try not to get too caught up in any particular belief system. I talk about a lot of ideas here, but I try not to take any of them too seriously. I don't claim to represent any particular religion, spiritual tradition, or secular school of thought. I hope that sometime I can record these episodes in one take, but I'm just not there yet. This is the second take, second time I'm trying to record this one. Uh, trying to get better at speaking and podcasting and all that. So um, uh, bear with me, please. <laughs> it's a learning curve. So anyway, um, I call this episode How I Became a Zealot. So here's what we're going to do in this episode. I'm going to tell you the story of how I adopted my first spiritual practice I'll talk about how that practice had some negative side effects that I hadn't foreseen when I started it. I'll talk about how I eventually freed myself from those side effects, and I'll tell you what I learned through that whole experience. In my 20s, for the first time in my life, I joined a spiritual institution, the Unitarian Universalist Church in Bloomington, Indiana, where I was going to grad school in computer science. I had just broken up with someone, and I was feeling kind of lonely and really wanting some connection and community, and the church provided that. They provided an instant community of people who shared my values, uh, and I dove right in. One of those values was intellectual freedom. That's the freedom to choose one's own beliefs. Intellectual freedom is pretty important to Unitarians. As an example of that, at one point, I was uh, getting together with some of my friends that I had made in this church, and we were setting up a table on campus to pass out literature about the church. So I was like, what can I, how can I describe this to people in a way that will, um, that they'll understand what this church is all about? So I made a sign to hang on the table that said, no dogma. We weren't about to tell anyone what to believe, and that was one of our selling points. We were selling salvation from oppressive religious institutions and from groupthink. So now let's fast forward 15 years to my late 30s. At that time, I started realizing to my dismay that I'd become stuck in a small conceptual box. I was living my life based on a limited set of beliefs and practices, which in turn were limiting my freedom and my ability to respond effectively to life. So how could this have happened to me, someone who values freedom as much as I do? That's what this episode is all about. 
So it all started in my early 30s, in the middle of my high-tech career. Like I said in the previous episode, around that time I was feeling drawn to explore a self-help practice called Nonviolent Communication, or NVC for short, that was created by a psychologist named Marshall Rosenberg. When I first ran into Marshall Rosenberg and his colleagues, I was really impressed by them. They seemed to have superpowers that I was lacking. The first thing I noticed about them was they seemed really committed to seeing the good in everyone and refraining from negative moral judgment. As I got more involved in the NVC community, I discovered some other superpowers that they had, too. Uh, They had an uncanny ability to work skillfully with intense emotions. Just by talking with people, they could often diffuse interpersonal conflicts, help people who were in emotional turmoil return to a calm, peaceful state of mind. They were also pretty good at regulating their their own emotions. Some of them radiated an interpersonal warmth and openness that I really liked. They seemed a lot less caught up in thoughts and thinking than I was. All this was pretty appealing to me. I cared about people and I considered myself to be intelligent, but in the area of emotions, I was starting to recognize that I wasn't really that skillful or articulate. I was also starting to recognize that I could be pretty judgmental sometimes, and I didn't really like that about myself. So to address these issues, I started getting involved in the community of people studying and practicing NVC. At first, I was somewhat skeptical about NVC, and I applied critical thinking as I was learning it. But I was also enthusiastic about NVC, and that enthusiasm was growing. A couple years into my NVC training, I found myself at a 10-day retreat, an international intensive retreat, with a whole bunch of other people from the NVC community from around the world. At this training, someone gave a talk where they described NVC as a spiritual practice. And that really caught my attention. I'd never had a spiritual practice before, and I was really curious what that would be like. I had been pretty grounded in the values of science and academia, and I had been pretty wary of spirituality. But NVC seemed closely aligned with my values, and it seemed to be based on practices with observable benefits rather than just beliefs. And I liked that about NVC. I I thought, hmm, maybe this is something that could work for me as a spiritual practice. So at that retreat, I made a decision to adopt NVC as my first spiritual practice. And I was kind of surprised how that felt. Uh, I noticed that my heart started overflowing with joy and gratitude. I felt like I'd found a spiritual home, and that felt really good. Over the next few years, I spent a lot of time with other nonviolent communication practitioners. I decided I wanted to get certified as an NVC trainer, 
and that required me to spend a long time studying, practicing, and teaching NVC. Through all that work, NVC became the organizing principle behind my thinking, and I became somewhat of an NVC zealot. I was convinced that everyone would love NVC as much as I did if they'd just give it a chance and get to know it a little bit. So I started giving away NVC books to my friends and family as gifts. Once in a while I'd run into someone who was interested in learning more, but this was more the exception than the rule. And to my surprise, some people seemed to actively dislike NVC. Over these years, NVC got integrated into my being, and eventually it became the underlying operating system that I used to make sense of the world and to interact with others. Eventually, I was able to develop some of those superpowers, some of those skills that drew me to NVC in the first place, and this felt like a big accomplishment. Soon after I discovered nonviolent communication, I started exploring another practice at the same time, meditation. At first, my meditation practice was just a way of reducing stress. That's what attracted me to meditation. I was working in high tech, working in this corporation, and uh, it was a pretty stressful experience, and I wanted to find ways to reduce that stress because I knew if I didn't, it was going to affect my health and and uh, didn't want that to happen. So at first, meditation was just a way of reducing stress. But that changed when I discovered the work of Ken Wilber. He had written a lot about consciousness and spiritual awakening, and he had created maps of spiritual awakening. Uh, those maps opened up a whole new world for me. And I started feeling a deep yearning to explore this territory. I started reading his books, listening to his audio recordings and videos. And I also started reading other books by other authors that Wilbur mentioned in his books. Uh, I started, started doing a lot of exploration in other books about psychology and spirituality. As I was doing this reading, I'd often encounter ideas related to nonviolent communication in one way or another. When I did, I tried to make sense of those ideas in terms of NVC. I translated and reduced competing perspectives to NVC, kind of translated these other ideas into NVC language to make sense of them. I felt ambivalent about doing this because part of me believed that the NVC model captured fundamental, irreducible truths about reality. This part of me believed that everything significant in other theories could be explained better through the lens of NVC. But there was another part of me too, and that other part wondered if I might be losing something in this translation process.
The further along I got in my exploration of psychology and spirituality, the more I started to encounter theories that were difficult to reconcile with the NVC model. And for some reason, I felt magnetically drawn to explore those theories more deeply. For instance, I felt drawn to read a book called People of the Lie by the psychiatrist M. Scott Peck. It's quite a book. Um, In that book, the author describes some really dark, real-life stories that he encountered in his work as a psychiatrist. And he's able to make sense of those stories in a theory about something that really doesn't get talked about at all in the NBC community. That's evil. As I read this book, I was impressed by the way the author's theory of evil allowed me to see and make sense of things that would be difficult to understand or even difficult to see using the framework of nonviolent communication. Soon after I read that book, I was selling a camera of mine on an online auction site. The winning bidder was pretty polite, but there was just something strange about the transaction. I felt uneasy about this guy's requests, and something just didn't feel right about it. Then I remembered something that I'd read in People of the Lie. M. Scott Peck said that the sign that you're in the presence of evil is not fear. It's not that you are necessarily feeling afraid. It's that you feel confused. And confusion is exactly what I was experiencing in this auction transaction. The winning bidder had a pretty high rating, but I hadn't looked too closely at the details of the feedback that he'd received. As I started looking more closely, I realized that he had a lot of positive transactions, but he also had some negative transactions too. And the comments on those negative transactions were pretty striking. I'd never seen anyone get feedback like this before. One unhappy person had written, Beware! Stay away! Scam! I started feeling like this transaction was not something I wanted to be involved with, and I wanted to get as far away from this guy as possible. So I got myself out of the transaction as quickly as I could, uh, despite this guy's protests and threats. I felt like I'd narrowly escaped a scam, and I felt relieved about that. And I also felt grateful to have had a theory that helped me recognize when I was about to be taken advantage of. Later that week, I, was, I went to a local nonviolent communication practice group where we'd get together and talk about what was going on in our lives, and I talked about this transaction. One of my fellow NVC community members was pretty surprised and disappointed in me for the way I'd handled that transaction. She was really surprised that I hadn't stayed in dialogue with the winning bidder to look for a solution that met both his needs and mine. She shook her head in disbelief and disapproval. 
Something was changing in my relationship to the NVC community, and this experience was evidence of that change. When I first adopted NVC as a spiritual practice, the worldwide community of NVC practitioners had felt like allies. We shared a belief system, we shared common values, and for the most part, we trusted each other. I'm sure that all of this is what made me feel so joyful at that time when I adopted NVC as a spiritual practice. But now all of this was starting to change. I was starting to question the basic assumptions of NVC, and as I did, my role was shifting from insider to outsider. Here's another example of of uh, what was happening for me at this time. NVC includes some strategies for anger management. It includes ideas like give yourself empathy and put your attention on the other person's feelings and needs, not on their blame and criticism. Those strategies sounded pretty good in theory, but they never really worked well for me in practice. When I was in an argument with someone in some kind of a conflict situation, I'd sit there trying to give myself empathy, trying to put my attention on the other person's feelings and needs, while they expressed their frustration and waited to hear my thoughts about the situation, which I never fully expressed because I was so busy trying to empathize. This was, frustrated, this was frustrating for everyone involved, and more than once I ended up storming off in an overwhelmed state of mind after my feelings reached a boiling point. For a long time, I assumed that my problem here was lack of skill in NVC, but eventually I started looking beyond NVC for ideas about how to deal with anger more effectively. One of the books that I read was an overview of a whole lot of theories about anger, I found this really helpful because it placed NVC anger management strategies in a broader historical context. It started getting clear to me that the NVC approach to anger hadn't been handed down by God. It had been derived from psychological theories that were in vogue at the time when NVC was being developed. As I read this book, I recognized that there's a lot of different competing theories of anger and how to deal with it. There's no clear winner, just a lot of different views, each offering a different perspective. There was something really freeing about recognizing this. So over the years when all this was happening, I'd continued to do a lot of meditation I joined a local Tibetan Buddhist Sangha. I'd started listening to the Buddhist Geeks podcast. And I discovered the recorded Dharma talks of a Buddhist teacher named Ken McLeod. I'd been consuming his talks at a rapid rate. Through all this spiritual practice and study, something was shifting for me internally. I was starting to recognize that every model or theory has limits. Every model shines a light on some aspects of reality, but casts a shadow over others. 
every model has a limited context over which it's applicable. That means if we try to rigidly apply a single model to every life situation, it's inevitable that we'll eventually encounter unexpected and unpleasant results. This helped me start making sense of these experiences I'd been having with NVC. I was finally starting to recognize that NVC was appropriate for some contexts, but not others. I was starting to let go of NVC as an overall guiding principle for my life. Around this time, I read a book called Immunity to Change by a psychologist named Robert Keegan. In this book, Keegan describes three levels that we may go through as we develop. Those levels are called socialized mind, self-authoring mind, and self-transforming mind. So here's what these levels are all about. At the level of socialized mind, we don't have any choice. We have to make sense of reality based on the culture of those around us. We kind of um, assimilate that culture without even knowing it, and then that's how we make sense of reality. That changes at the level of self-authoring mind. At that level, we gain the capacity to choose our own beliefs and values, which may differ from the beliefs and values of those around us. However, we're still identified with our own beliefs and values, and we feel threatened when those beliefs and values get challenged. That changes at the level of self-transforming mind. At that level, we disidentify with our own beliefs and values, and we gain the capacity to look at them critically and recognize their limitations. Our beliefs and values become something that we have rather than something that has us. This framework helped me start to make sense of the transformation that I was currently in the midst of. I realized that I was shifting from an uncritical acceptance of my chosen beliefs, an uncritical acceptance of nonviolent communication, towards the ability to recognize the limitation of all belief systems. I was starting to feel more grounded in my intuition through my meditation practice, and as that was happening, I, I no longer needed any particular belief system to stabilize my sense of self. When I had first ran into NVC and integral theory, they had seemed magical and special. They seemed like gateways to the truth. Now I was starting to be able to view them with a greater sense of perspective. Both of them were somewhat useful, and both of them were somewhat flawed. They were just two theories among many competing views of reality. They were starting to lose the glow of divine truth that they'd had for me over the years. So this conceptual knowledge, this conceptual understanding was great to have. It was great to have a way of making sense of this transformation that, was, uh, that I was going through, but I still had a problem. I'd spent years in the NVC community. 
I'd been intentionally learning new patterns of thinking and communicating, and those patterns had now become deeply ingrained habits. Those habits had once been my spiritual practice, but over time they'd started to feel oppressive. Now I was faced with the task of escaping from this box by changing my habits. Just as I had to practice engaging in the patterns of NVC to make them into habits, I now had to actively practice disengaging from them to free myself from them. So when I noticed that I was limiting my thinking or behavior to conform with NVC norms, I started intentionally trying to do something different. For instance, for years I'd been limiting what thoughts I shared with others, especially in conflict situations. Now I started rediscovering the power of communicating my thoughts more freely without censoring them. I also had another, more subtle problem. Like all conceptual models, NVC is based on a set of assumptions. For instance, it it includes assumptions like we should avoid violence, we should avoid making moral judgments about people, and we should avoid diagnosing people as mentally ill. Also, when we're in conflict, we should stay in dialogue and empathize with everyone involved so we can transform our anger to compassion and work work out our differences. When I first heard these ideas, they seemed refreshing and intriguing. But somehow, over the years that I'd spent practicing and teaching NVC, these ideas started feeling like facts or obvious truths. I'd lost my ability to think critically about these assumptions. I'd even lost the ability to recognize them as assumptions. If someone had asked me if I was willing to accept, on faith, the basic assumptions of the NVC model, I certainly would have said no. But somehow, true belief snuck up on me. When I'd first encountered NVC, I was like a person dipping my toe in the water and thinking about going for a swim. When I adopted NVC as my first spiritual practice, I dove in the water. And somehow, over the years, I'd become a fish. The foundational assumptions of NVC had become the water in which I was swimming, and the water itself had become invisible. I'd become a true believer without even realizing it. Now I was starting to recognize what had happened, and I was faced with the task of identifying and questioning the assumptions that I'd been taking for granted for years. On an interpersonal level, the NBC community had been an important part of my social life and work life for years. As these interchanges started happening for me, I got a lot less interested in participating in this community. I'd been 
collaborating with some other NVC trainers on some projects, and I let go of these collaborations. I also let my certification lapse. Over time, I made new friends, I escaped from my conceptual box, and I changed my career focus from NVC to psychotherapy. Now I can look back on my involvement with nonviolent communication with more gratitude and a greater sense of perspective. NVC had been an important stepping stone on my spiritual path, and the skills I learned in the NVC community have been helpful in my personal life and my work life. But I wonder, is there a way I could have received these benefits while at the same time avoiding the challenges that I described? I don't know for sure, but I do have some ideas about this. There was one key turning point in my relationship with NVC, a turning point that I think may have led to all the challenges that I experienced. I wonder if you caught what it was. It was a point at which I decided to adopt NVC as a spiritual practice. That's because when I did that, I adopted it as both a guiding principle for my life and an organizing principle for my thinking. In other words, I intentionally gave NVC supreme importance in my life. When I did that, it started getting harder to look at NVC critically. Lucky for me, there was another process that was happening at the same time. I was actively exploring contemplative spirituality and psychology, and this exposed me to many useful ideas, some of which were incompatible with the basic assumptions of NVC. This created some cognitive dissonance, and when that dissonance got strong enough, I was able to start viewing NVC with a greater sense of perspective. I stopped giving it supreme importance and started looking at it as one spiritual practice among many. Mostly, I think that ascribing supreme importance to anything is a bad idea. Let's look at some examples. When we ascribe supreme importance to a spiritual practice like NVC, we become zealots. When we ascribe supreme importance to a religion, we become fundamentalists. And when we ascribe supreme importance to science, we fall prey to scientism. When we ascribe supreme importance to pleasure, we become hedonists. And we, when we ascribe supreme importance to the belief that nothing matters, we become nihilists. I could go on and on. In each case, viewing something as supremely important causes us to lose our perspective on it. When that happens, life starts getting out of balance, we start suffering, and so does everyone around us. So, what's the alternative? Don't we need something to guide us? Without holding any belief system as supremely important, how could we possibly know what to do? In my experience, 
spiritual practice has helped me get in touch with an intuitive knowing that's informed by reason, but that doesn't depend on reason. These days, my actions seem to flow spontaneously from that intuitive knowing, rather than being guided by any particular belief system. Does that mean that I'm making intuition supremely important? Not really. That's because I don't fully trust my intuitive knowing, so there are plenty of times when I use reason to question my intuition. I also expose myself to a lot of ideas from other people, and I use those ideas to question my own. So, who's in charge? What's running the show? Really, I have no idea, but somehow it all seems to work out, for the most part. All I can say for sure is that there's a lot less suffering in my life now than there has been in the past, and I think that has a lot to do with spiritual practice. Is it supremely important to never make anything supremely important? I don't think so. Religion seems to be really helpful for many people who do make their religion supremely important, and I think that can be okay, at least as a temporary resting point in our development. As for myself, I do sense some kind of underlying force or principle that seems important to me. It seems much bigger than me. It's something that I can participate in, but I can't own it or control it. As I think about it, I find myself thinking that it must have something to do with subjective experience, or maybe it has something to do with balance or compassion. But each time I try to put my finger on it, each time I try to name it, it slips away. As soon as I try to name and explain what's most important to me, I find myself in deep trouble. My explanation immediately stops feeling right, and I start thinking about exceptions. So for now, what's supremely important to me shall remain nameless. And maybe it must remain nameless. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. You can find an article and show notes for this episode at spiritualawakeningforgeeks.com slash howibecameazealot. There's a lot more happening at Spiritual Awakening for Geeks than just this show, so I hope you might subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date. You can do that at spiritualawakeningforgeeks.com slash newsletter. If you're enjoying this show, please subscribe to it. You can also rate it and review it on your favorite podcast directory, and that helps the show rise higher in the ratings so others can find it. Until next time, this is Jacob Gottwalls wishing you freedom of thought, freedom of belief, and freedom of of expression as you find your own way on your spiritual path.